If you've ever been to Spain, you've likely been told how to spot a Seville orange. But how often have you seen one on the opera stage? I'm Naomi Baratera, and on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, Spanish cuisine and the flavor it adds to many operas. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. From Mozart's Don Giovanni to Bizet's Carmen, Seville is a favored locale in opera. In the final installment of our Divas and Dinner series, food historian and opera enthusiast Carl Raymond takes us on a mouth-watering tour of Spain and its connection to the operatic art form. Spanish city, 
which doesn't help us very much at all because that could be almost anywhere. But most productions today actually do use Seville as a setting, um, except that very famous 1979 Joseph Losey film of Don Giovanni, which you may be familiar with, who sort of sets the whole thing in Venice. The opening is in the canals of Venice, and Don Giovanni's villa is actually the great Palladian villas in Vicenza. But we're not going to analyze that tonight. The only other geographical information we get in Don Giovanni is from Donna Elvira, who is from Burgos, which is, uh, again, another um, area of Spain. And Burgos is interesting because there's some wonderful cheese there on the coast. You get some shrimp and some cod. We don't know what she ate, but we know that she came from Burgos, and she spent however long it's been trailing Don Giovanni all over the country, attempting to make things right with him. But in terms of us, and tonight, Spain, uh, Seville, will work just fine. Now, overall, in terms of food, um, both operas really tell different parts of the story of Spanish food. In Don Giovanni, there's a recurrent theme of appetite. There's the appetite for love or lust, depending on how you want to define it, and of course, the appetite for food. And in Mozart's opera, we see really a bit of the world of the nobleman's table, both Don Giovanni's, we also imagine the commendatory's household. And depending on the staging, we also see the world of the peasants, which is, we see that in the wedding scene of Mazzetto and Zerlina. That said, I think Don Giovanni, more than anything else, gives us the greatest dinner invitation in the entire world of opera. And what I mean by that, for a little quick refresher, is at the opening of Don Giovanni, Don Giovanni has made another conquest, it is the noblewoman, Donna Anna, and as he is trying to escape from her rooms, he of course runs into the commendatore, Donna Anna's father, and he kills him. Now, the rest of the opera is basically Donna Anna and Don Ottavio chasing Don Giovanni around to avenge that death, aided by Donna Elvira. And in the beginning of Act Two, we have Don Giovanni and his faithful, and we love him, servant Leporello. They find themselves in the graveyard, and they're on the run again, of course. And Don Giovanni taunts the statue because he happens to be in front of the tomb of the Commendatore. And he taunts the statue and he says, well, why don't you come to dinner? Well, those of you that know the story, and those of you that don't can guess, the statue does come to dinner. And of course, that brings Don Giovanni to his faithful and fiery death. But it does happen over dinner. Now, uh, Carmen. Carmen, it's not quite so dramatic as that, but there's a lot of passion and love, and of course there's, there's uh, death there. But here we have the world of the tavern, the world of the gypsy, and the world of the nomad. And it's really said in a lot of critics' cir circles that Carmen isn't really Spanish, that she's French, and that her character was really created from the novelist, Garibay, who wrote the novel at the beginning of the 19th century, and then how Bizet adapted it for the first performance in 1875 in Paris for a much later audience, and that is very true. But nonetheless, Carmen eats and drinks throughout the opera, and the opera has some things to say about that. But that's a little bit more about regionality, so that's what we're gonna focus on in that. Of course, we have Seville with the famous oranges, the Moorish cuisine, but there are two other characters in Carmen. We have Don Jose and Micaela, who are from the north. They're from Navarre, which is the world of the Basque region and there's some wonderful things about food there. Now, ever since I started talking about this talk two weeks ago, I've been teasing you that I would throw in another Don, and a little bit I will, and that's Don Carlo. Now, Don Carlo, his was the world of the mid-1500s, but it was Elizabeth de Valois who really brings the great food perspective into that, because she was brought up in the world, she's French, of course, and brought up in the world of Fontainebleau, and the Renaissance court of France, and she would have known a lot about food, and we'll talk about that. So the main focus, really, of this talk is to give you an overview of some of the influences of Spanish food. Now, in order to do that, we're going to make some dips into some other areas, and I will tell you that that follows the wanderings of my creative brain, so I beg your indulgence with that, but trust me, it does all fit together in the end. Now, before we dive in, I have to invoke another famous Spaniard who often talked about food and the abundance of it, or sometimes the lack of that. And of course, that's another Don, and that's Don Quixote, um, our friend from Cervantes. It's all, and of course, the operatic incarnation with Massenet, Don Quixote. It's always the beloved Sancho who's talking about food, and Don Quixote who's talking about more spiritual ways um, to receive sustenance. But it really was Cervantes 
who said, no matter what Don you're talking about, that the proof of the pudding was in the eating. So there's a little um, Cervantes. Now, back to Don Giovanni. So this is a drinking song of sorts. It's the act one aria in Don Giovanni, uh, Ficha dal Vino. Now, it's known as the Champagne Aria, and at this point in the opera, Don Giovanni's life has gotten a little complicated. Donna Elvira has thrown a thorn in his side, and she has thwarted his attempts to seduce Serena. And Donna Tavio and Donna Anna have shown up at this ball, and they've sworn they're going to avenge the death of her father. And Don Giovanni really doesn't care. And while the motivations are very different in these two arias, last week when we played the Sempre Libera, when I was listening this week to the, the Champagne aria, I thought there's a really interesting overlap because Don Giovanni is very defiant in this aria because he says he will live the life that he wants, he will dance with whomever he chooses, and of course it had, he calls for a great celebration, and of course it has disastrous result. Now, I love the idea of Don Giovanni tossing back a glass of champagne as he sings the beginning of this. He never refers to champagne in the aria. He only refers to vino. But then we have to look back at the 18th century. Let's assume it's the end of the 18th century when Don Giovanni would have happened. And what was he really drinking? I don't think he was drinking champagne at all. I think it would have clearly been a wonderful fino sherry or maybe one of the great Spanish reds, which were bottled at the time, Malaga or Rioja. But you know what? It ultimately doesn't matter for our purposes. It's a wonderful aria, and so let's have a listen. Finché la vino cala la testa, una gran festa fa preparar. Se trovi in piazza qualche ragazza, te con quella cerca menar, te con quella cerca menar, cerca menar, cerca menar. Senza con ordine la desasia, che il minuetto, che la follia, che la lemanna, fare balar, che il minuetto, fare balar, che la follia, fare balar, che la lemanna, fare balar. Now, even before the Romans, the Iberian Peninsula was really a crossroads of culture and influence, and many of the things that we think of as typically Spanish were brought there and left by somebody else. The Romans were largely responsible for the olive oil and the wine. The Arabs, they brought their cold soups, of course, born of a hot climate, and the need for food that traveled well, the different gazpachos that you find throughout Spain, and that we'll talk about. We think of that, and even the classic version we think of today was not the original version. Gazpacho has gone through a lot of evolutions. The Arabs were also in maybe most importantly, responsible for the irrigation systems that came to Spain that really helped improve the growing of crops. And one of the most important additions is bringing nuts from the east. And one of the most important, which you find in Spanish cuisine, is the almond. Now, the almond was importantly, important not only as a delicacy on its own, but also it was used as a thickener. And if there's ever a theme, or one of the many themes in culinary history, is what did people use to thicken their food? before we got the classic root in 19th century France. Often in cuisines, onions were used, but also nuts could be used too, and they very much were here. The Sephardic Jews made contributions as well. The oyots, the stews that are so wonderful and famous in Spanish cooking, that came from the Sephardic cuisine, and I'll talk about that. And then, of course, the Christians brought the pork and the ham, which evolved into the famous hamon, the hamon ibérico, and the serrano uh, that we have. But what I think is most interesting in all of this is that so many of the ingredients that are so familiar to us when we think of Spanish cooking weren't even known in Spain 500 years ago. Potatoes, tomatoes, peppers, cocoa, these were all brought to Europe and to Spain from the New World from over here. Now countries are divided often in a lot of different ways, often by geography, more often by religion, and that is very, very true of Spain. And it's how they all fit together that you get the cuisine. So let's take them apart a little bit. 
Okay, so let's look at the Arab influence. Up to 70% of the Iberian Peninsula was under Muslim influence at a certain point, from 711 AD all the way up to 1492, which was the year that Spain was, was unified, the Muslims were chased out along with the Sephardic Jews. It was the year that America was discovered, but that's a very, very long run of Arab influence. And that cold gazpacho soup came from this, the nougats, Spanish nougats are wonderful. That came from the classic Middies, made with sugar and honey and nuts and egg whites. Now, of course, the main dietary restrictions were that pork and fermented drinks were forbidden. And if you go looking for signs of Arab influence, I always think it's fascinating to go look at the language, because one of the tip-offs is look at words that begin with A related to food, because often those are uh, foods that had originally an Arabic uh, Moorish influence, rice, arroz is one of them. Fish was found along the coast, but it was fried and salted. That was very much um, one of the original preparations. And very importantly, the Arabs brought the culinary technique of pickling, because this was a way to preserve fish in a hot climate. And you see that today in the pickled sardines and anchovies that you find in all the tapas bars. Eggplants and sugar cane and spinach and rice, apricots, the citrus, this all came from the Arab influence as well. Now, olives, as I had said, existed since Roman times, but it was the Arabs that brought those cisterns and the ditches and the draining systems that really dramatically improved their production and allowed the trees to flourish. Lamb and poultry were the preferred meats, meats with little fat. They were often marinated overnight in milk and vinegar to season them and also um, soften the meat. They were seasoned with onion and garlic, fennel, olives again, and spice with some of the spices in the Middle East, like cinnamon and coriander. The Arabs also brought the technology for distilling spirits. And this is important because it wasn't for drinking, but it was for medicinal purposes. And the Spanish used the technology to create perfume. Now desserts, these were greatly affected by the Moorish and the Arab influence. The Moors brought the sugar cane, and they taught the Spanish how to refine it. And this was a revolution in Spanish cakes, because up to this point, it was basically bread with some honey mixed in. Now, let's go off to the Sephardic influence. It's impossible to look at Spanish food without the Sephardic Jewish tradition. In fact, the name means Jews of Spain. That's the derivation of that. Now, the Sephardic influences are mostly, they come from the long traditions of Jewish gastronomy, and of course, related to practice, Jewish practices and rules and celebrations. Now, the wealth, the population of uh, the Jewish population was fairly wealthy, and often they could have two spaces in their homes or in their kitchens for the separate preparations of food. And some of those typical dishes, which you see today, breaded and fried things, the courgette, the zucchini, came from this eggplant, pies made from eggs and cheese and spices using yogurt and cucumber and mint flavored with olive oil, also cabbage and cauliflower and beets. Now, of course, there was no pork, but lamb was favored as the main meat. It was really almost a sacred animal. And many of these uh, dishes were adapted to the region. So back to the gazpachos again, the unleavened bread was used as the thickener in Andalusia. And of course, back to those voyas, the, the stews that I was talking about, these were stews and braises that could be prepared a day in advance to allow for better flavor, of course, but this went along with the dietary rule of not cooking on the Sabbath. You could prepare it the day before, and then it would be reheated on the day. Same thing with the pickling that we just talked about. It allows flavors to develop further, but again, allows you to prepare food in advance. Now, with a heavy Christian influence in Spain, particularly during the reign of Ferdinand and Isabella in the 1400s, when they chased everyone out of Spain and wanted the entire peninsula to be Christian, one of the greatest legacies, of course, was the ham that I just mentioned. And it was the idea of using all of the different parts of the pig to prevent any waste. Now, it was the Christian tradition of Easter that brought the greatest development in cuisine here. Things like garlic soup was a traditional uh, dish. Dishes made with the cod and the fried fritters and the croquettes all point back to this original time. And I think one of the greatest contributions was an area of sweets and one of which was marzipan, which was made of almonds. And it goes back to the 11th century with some nuns in Toledo, and it was the convent of San Clemente, and it was a time of severe famine, and they had nothing to make bread with. So those very industrious nuns got together, and they ground up some almonds, and they mixed them with water and sugar, and marzipan was born. Now, 
Now, there are some food historians that argue that it happened in Sicily, but I think it happened at both at the same time. Now, there was another dish that I loved called Suspiro di Monia, nun's size. Well, these were fritters that were served with fruit. Now, the story of these, there's a little discrepancy here, but some people say that it was made by a group of nuns as they were making pot of choux, the, the choux paste, and as it deflated and the air dropped out of it, that the nuns thought that was just the funniest thing, and so it became called a nun's side. Another is that some careless nun dropped some dough into a, a vat of frying oil, and that's how fritters were born. We don't know for sure. But tortillas, which is another fried bread, tradition of fried bread, think of French toast when you think of uh, tortillas. That was invented in the 15th century, again by nuns in the Easter season. And that was said to resemble the roast meat. Now, how French toast actually looks like roast meat, I'm not sure. But nonetheless, this is culinary history because the meat was forbidden during the Lenten period, so that was what the fritter was meant to look like. I think it's really interesting to note, and somebody really should do a study on all of the foods that came out of the world of nuns and convents. And you know, you actually, as you travel around Europe, if you taste some of the food in these convents, it's really quite wonderful. In fact, I find it fascinating that some of the wealthiest families would often contract the nuns in the convents to create and cook for them. It all goes back to my theory that if you really want to know something about food, ask a nun. She knows far more than she'll ever want to. So the new world. Um, I think some of the greatest food and the greatest recipes come when something happens by mistake. And that's exactly what happened in 1492 when there was a huge discovery by mistake. And of course, it was America. It wasn't the Indies, Indies but it yielded some of the greatest uh, treasures for both the Spanish and the European tables. Now, sometimes when we look at the history of cuisine and we look at classic French gastronomy, for example, it was people like Carême that we talked about or Escoffier that moved a cuisine forward by the technology that they brought to it in technique. Sometimes it's religious traditions that does it, but in this case, it was a jolt of new ingredients. And I think that aside from the religious traditions that we just talked about, this was the most important thing that moved Spanish cuisine forward were new ingredients that people could use. And some of them are very common to us today. Potatoes. Potatoes fascinate. Aren't you fascinated by potatoes? They were actually first discovered in Peru back in 1532. Of course, the Incas had known about them for a very, very long time. The first potato was domesticated in southern Peru in parts of Bolivia. You ready for this? Between 8,000 and 5,000 BC. They weren't quite what we think of today. They were actually, they pressed the water out and they were freeze dried by the very cold night air. And they looked like these little shriveled, shriveled things. But nonetheless, potatoes, they were. But by the end of the 16th century, Basque sailors had cultivated them in the north of Spain. And it was Sir Walter Raleigh that brought them to the British Isles and to Ireland in 1589. Now, when the potato arrived in France, everyone thought it was poisonous and they wouldn't have anything to do with it. And then so the story goes, Marie Antoinette started wearing potato flowers in her hair and it caught on. Now, of course, potatoes on the Spanish table represent some of the most famous dishes uh, that we know, the tortillas de patatas, and the tortilla in, in Spain is, is what we think of, not as the tortilla um, here. Uh, the patatas bravas. One dish I think is wonderful, the arugadas from the Canary Islands, which is boiled potatoes with a wonderful garlic and chili sauce. And then you have the tomatoes. And how can we think of Spanish cuisine without tomatoes? They were truly one of the newest ingredients to enter the cuisine. They came over from Mexico. They, again, were part of the Inca world of the Andes. They were a central part of the Aztec cuisine as well. And if you think the potato had a hard sell, the tomato was even worse. People thought that deep red color meant danger, and they wouldn't eat it, and they used the vines only for decorative purposes. Eventually, it was used as a medicinal treatment, and of course, then we had chocolate. This, again, was famous in the Aztec world, but it was not the chocolate that we know. Those cocoa beans were very bitter, and the Aztec taste was a very bitter taste for chocolate, but it was, again, the Spanish that took it, they melted it, they ground it, they added water, they added sugar, and they drank it. And that is what became a vice, actually, an addictive vice in the 17th and 18th century. Absolutely would have been on Don Giovanni's table. In fact, he calls for chocolate. Now, another spice that really we can't think about Spanish cuisine without thinking about is paprika. Now, this was something that, again, came from the New World. It came from Mexico. It found a home in Spain and then eventually made its way over into Eastern Europe and Spain, not the other way around. 
And how can you think of chorizo, that classic Spanish sausage, which has existed for hundreds of years? It was brown before the introduction of the red paprika. So while we don't often see great examples of food on stage in this, I think this is one moment in Don Giovanni where all of these influences that I've just been talking about would have come together, and that's the wedding of Zerlin and Mazzetto. Now, they were peasants after all, but I'm just going to imagine that as a gift, somebody gave them a great roasted pig that is just off the side of our stage that we can't see, or some spicy grilled sausage made from the scraps of the pig with some fresh herbs. I would expect a selection of tortas and tortillas on those big, long tables made with eggs and vegetables, some fresh baked bread, of course, some sweets made with the honey and nuts, but let's take a look at this scene. You'll see the merriment of Zerlina and Masetto at the beginning to celebrate. Then, of course, Don Giovanni and Leporello enter. And Don Giovanni sets his eyes on Zerlina. And of course, this does not make Masetto very happy. He storms off. And then we have the great duet, La Cidere La Mano. Al fin siam liberati, Zerlinetta gentil, da quel scioccone. Che ne dite mio bel? So far pulito, Signore, e mio marito. Chi colui? Vi pare che un onesto uomo, un nobil cavalier come io mi vanto, possa soffrir che quel visetto d'oro, quel viso inzuccherato, da un bifocaccio vil sia strapazzato. Ma Signore, io gli diedi parola di sposarlo. <ride> Tal parole non vale un zero, voi non siete fatta per esser paesana. Un'altra sorte vi procuran quegli occhi briconcelli, quella bretti si belli, quelli di tutte candide odorose. Parmi toccar giuncato e fiuto rose. Ah, non vorrei! Che non vorreste? Al fine indannata a restare! Io so che rado con le donne e voi altri cavalieri! Siete oneste e sinceri! È un'impostura della gente plebea! La nobiltà dipinta negli occhi l'onestà. Forsù, non perdiam tempo. In questo istante io ti voglio sposare. Certo io. Quel casinetto è mio. Soli saremo e l'occhio mio ci sposeremo
Ah! 
Don Giovanni Seville is important, and I think in, in Carmen, Seville really acts almost as a character in the drama. I remember the very first time <clears throat> I saw Seville, I had gotten off the train, it was a long trip from Madrid, I was a student, we all had backpacks, we were in the train station, and the first thing about Seville was the smell, and it was the smell of the orange blossoms in the street, and to walk out of that train station and to smell this was just intoxicating, and of course, makes it a very sensual uh, city. I will never, ever forget that. Seville was founded by the Romans and all told just, just about 2,000 years old. Um, it was a strong river port, which made it desirable. And the city was under the Muslim rule until the Christian rule took over in the 1200s. Now, a city that contains this feeling of the more, also you see it in the architecture, the, the Alcazar, the cathedral, all of these uh, places, the Christian rule brought a sense of the Gothic architecture as well. And given the fact, and I find this really interesting, that it was an inland port, this was all, the only ships that were allowed to dock here were the ships that were trading with America and the New World. So Seville was actually a point of entry for so many of these new ingredients that we had talked about um, a few minutes ago. The early um, 18th and 19th centuries, by the time you got there to the period of the operas that we've been talking about, Seville had fallen into a bit of a decline. The early 18th century saw the building of the Royal Tobacco Factory, which is still there. It's now part of the university, but of course is a central feature in Carmen. But probably the food that's most well associated with Seville is the gazpacho, those cold vegetable soups with the savory bits were perfect for a day like today. However, <laughs> The gazpacho has some very, very ancient roots, um, and like many things, it starts with the Romans. There was, there was a soup, it was a porridge almost, of bread and olive oil and water. Stale bread often used in this um, preparation. I'm always interested in the etymology of words and where they come from, and the Latin word caspa means little bits and little fragments, and that is thought to be the origin of the word um, gazpacho. But first of all, gazpacho was never traditionally red, and the concept of the tomatoes even actually came in in the 19th century, and there, there are versions of gazpacho, as you see here, that are not um, red at all, that are in fact white, and that are made of avocado and cucumbers and, and parsley, even watermelon in them, that are made of both meat and fish stocks. And that chunky consistency that we know, that's something also fairly modern. And if you wonder, ever wonder, how cooks, before they had food processors, got things smooth, it was one of the most important kitchen implements that you could possibly have from the Renaissance till about the 19th century, and it was the mortar and pestle. And that is how you ground things and ground things and you smooth them out. Now, we had talked about the variations. Um, Cadiz, for example, has a version of gazpacho that doesn't use water as a base at all. During a drought, they actually used cream as a base. Uh, which have Cordoba has one called San Morejo, which actually peels the tomatoes and they're pureed, so it's a very thick, almost a paste, not quite. One of the things that I always have to say about this is that we're used to eating gazpacho ice cold, and that is not at all the traditional way of eating it. And chill, yes, but things generally we eat them a little bit too cold, but that's my personal um, feeling here. I wanted to talk about another important thing in the world of Carmen, and that's Manzanilla. And despite the food, if there was a drink that you really had to associate with the world of Carmen and those um, taverns, it was this. And I, because of course she sings about it in the Seguidia, which we're going to hear in just a couple of minutes. Now, Manzanilla, if you translate it, roughly means little apple. Uh, but when it refers to a wine, it refers to this Pinot Sherry. Um, it also refers to chamomile flowers because it is thought that this drink reflects the, the smell and the, the taste of chamomile. Now, a fino sherry, just to do a little sherry 101, it's the driest and the palest of all the traditional sherries, and it's very, it's best drunk when it's young, it can lose its flavor once it's opened. So I think that that would be a very appropriate wine to drink in the tavern of Libas Pastia, that of course Carmen does, except like Champagne, in the Champagne aria, the development of the Pinot Sherry didn't really take off until the mid-19th century, so I'm really curious if this is something that Carmen really would have drunk. It is certainly something that her audience 
listening to the opera in the late 19th century would have known. But to celebrate Manzanilla and a little bit of Carmen, the Seguidien. up here by taking a look at the, uh, we have the tapas, the famous, this is the celebration of the street food of Spain, and I think that the right moment to celebrate that in Carmen is the scene outside the bullring. And if you look at the actual text, we don't get too much, we talk about fans and we talk about oranges, but there absolutely would have been some of the classic street foods of representing some of the influences that we've talked about tonight that it was, would have been there. I have to talk about the Seville orange, though, this is really important, and I'm also curious about that and raise my questions about that, because the Seville orange is bitter. Um, it's, not, it's not sweet. This was the orange, this is where marmalade um, came from. It came to Spain in the 10th century, again from the Moors, and then it moved to the New World. That's in fact where Florida got the basis of its um, citrus fruit. And in some ways, it's a miracle fruit. Um, it was the oil that was really prized in the Seville orange, and it could be used to make perfume. It was used for medicinal purposes. It was actually even considered a natural appetite suppressant. So eat more marmalade. <laughs> There's actually not very much flesh to this. It doesn't have a lot of juice to it, and it was the skin that was what was so highly prized. So nonetheless, I'm curious when the vendors cry for the oranges that they're selling, if it would have been the Seville orange that they really would have sold. Again, to a late 19th century audience in France, that might have made some sense. But we are going to finish up with the opening of the fourth act of Carmen, the scene outside the ballroom with all of the vendors, the great procession into the ballroom.
That was Carl Raymond in the final lecture of the Metropolitan Opera Guild's Divas and Dinner series. Several of the operas we've touched upon in the last few episodes will be featured in the Met's upcoming Summer HD Festival, here at Lincoln Center. You can watch operas from last season on a giant screen in front of the Met for 10 straight nights. The festival runs from August 25th through Labor Day, it's free and open to the public, and it's a fantastic way to enjoy opera under the stars. For more information, visit metopera.org. I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.